This evening, we're going to talk a little bit about worldviews. The first thing that I want you to understand is everybody came into this room with a worldview. The problem is, when you look at our society, the vast majority of people do not have a worldview that is harmonizing with God's Word. Barna did a a research study recently where they showed only 4% of the American population has a biblical worldview. Now let that settle in for just a moment. You say, what's the big deal? Well, consider this for just a moment. People who have a biblical worldview are 11 times less likely to condone adultery. They are 15 times less likely to believe that homosexuality is acceptable. They are 18 times less likely to condone drunkenness. 31 times less likely to condone premarital cohabitation. That is, people who are living together who aren't married. And last but not least, they're 100 times less likely to condone abortion. In other words, people who hold to a biblical worldview, they are leading more moral lives. And yet, what I just told you is only about 4% of the American population has that. Now, you add to that what is going on right now in our school system, and that is the average young person who travels through 12 years of public school, only 5% of them will graduate holding to a biblical worldview. Only 5%. What is this word that I'm using this evening And how does it affect you? Why is it important to this particular congregation? I tell people that your worldview is basically the lens through which you look at everything. Again, every person came into this room this evening possessing a world. A lot of times people are like, well, I don't have one of those. (laughs) Yes, you do. Your worldview is shaped by things like your education, your life's experiences, your religion. But let me break it down even further than that. How many of you have ever watched an infant who maybe you, you start smiling at that infant? You know what that infant sometimes will do? He'll start smiling back. You know, you smile and you tickle them, and what is their response? Their response is to smile. Now, if you frown or you have a a kind of a a sneer on your face, oftentimes that child's automatic response is to go from smiling to frowning because they're cueing off of who? They're cueing off of you. So how do you develop a worldview? Let me point out first and foremost, you don't go into a class and somebody says, I'm now about to teach you something for your worldview. No, no, no. It's a whole lot more subtle than that. It's, for instance, when mom and dad are listening to CNN and all of a sudden dad walks in the room and says, I can't take that anymore, and he turns off the TV, he's just sent a worldview message to his kids about whatever was on at that time. Or maybe a parent makes a remark that's either really, really excited or really, really happy about something, and that kid realizes, oh, that's, that's a good thing. What are you doing? You're teaching them a worldview through very subtle 
whether it be your, your attitude, lessons, your worldview actually helps you to answer questions like, why am I here? Where am I going when I die? Ultimately, how did I get here? Now, when you think about that, it's pretty obvious that somebody who buys into a big bang, their whole worldview is shifted away from somebody who believes in Jesus Christ. But I need you to understand your worldview actually affects every aspect of your life, whether it be history or the way you look at law, the way you look at ethics, psychology, literally everything that you look at is shaped by your worldview. Let me give you just one example that hopefully will kind of help you to see what I mean by a worldview. When 9-11 happened, some of you remember they were showing on live TV, they were showing people in the streets of New York, they were covered in ash, and they almost had a, a dazed zombie look. You remember that? And then they started showing live coverage from Europe, from, for instance, the UK. And there were people in London who were openly crying for what was going on in America. And then they showed what was going on in some of the Middle Eastern countries. Some of the Middle Eastern countries where they were literally throwing parades. They were handing out candy to kids. Totally different worldviews. Some people saw it as a tragedy, and some people looked at it as, hey, this is a, a good thing. So again, your worldview shapes every aspect of your life. How does it shape as, as far as your children? And why is it a big deal? I mentioned only 5% public school kids graduate with a biblical worldview. And here's one of the reasons. We look at something as simple as reading. And our kids run off to school and, and they're taught this idea that it's important for you to read so you can get ahead. Because after all, that, that's what we want, right? We want them to get ahead. And yet somebody with a biblical worldview looks at it a little bit broader and says, it's important that my child is able to read because God has revealed himself in the written word. And in order for my child to understand for themselves what God really wants, they need to be able to read. And so what do we do? We teach them to read so that they can learn God's will. Same thing with science. You look at science for just a moment. You know, you, you send your kid off to school and they say, hey, it's important that you learn science so that you can, you can go to college and you can be a nurse or a doctor or a physical therapist. And yet somebody with a biblical worldview looks at it and says, science is vitally important because the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. In fact, Romans chapter 1, it talks about his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And so, yes, we want our kids to learn science, but one of the primary reasons is because that's what points back to God. Worldview matters. And in order to have the correct worldview, what I want to do is I want to take you all the way back to the beginning and just ask you a simple question. What was God's original plan 
for mankind. If you can't answer this question, then your worldview is probably leaning towards a secular or humanistic worldview. His original plan was that we would be together with him in that garden. I mean, you think about it for just a moment. God and man were together. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, before I go any further, I need to make sure you guys are really grasping what's happening there. Do you really get the fact that God and man were together? That's a big deal. Because do you realize that means Adam and Eve don't have to go to heaven because they're already basically there, right? They're not sitting there thinking, well, I hope when I die that I get... No, no, they're already in the presence of God. In fact, think about it this way. They didn't have to worry about death. They didn't have to worry about sickness. In fact, one thing is what shattered this entire plan. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Genesis 3. Take a look with me. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And so here's what we discover. Sin wrecked God's original plan. It totally did away with what God intended. And instead of of us being with God, all of a sudden, we're separated. Because God cannot be who He is. He can't be holy and be joined together with sin. So all of a sudden, here's what you've got. You've got death entering into the picture. You look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and following. To Adam he said, Because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you should not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, You shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. In other words, all of a sudden, we got to start worrying about dying. we got to start worrying about the fact that we are separated from God. That, That wasn't in the original plan. The original plan, we were already there. And yet, sin enters the picture, and now we're separated. Take a look, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote this. He said, for since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Think with me for just a moment. How much time do you spend thinking about sickness and death? Or, Or how much time do we pray from this pulpit about people who are diseased or or with sickness or going through surgery? 
that wasn't the original plan. And yet now we spend massive amounts of time thinking about things like aging and sickness and disease, all because of sin. You see, if you're going to shape a biblical worldview in your life, you got to go all the way back to creation. And you got to remember what was the original plan. And then what you do is you add to that and you say, okay, sin wrecked that plan. I'm pretty convinced that we don't really think about the heinous nature of sin that much. Because deep down, we don't, you know, we don't think we're really all that bad. And we don't realize how good God is. We don't realize the heinous nature of it because we're not holy. I've told many, many congregations, and I mean this, I believe the greatest hour of idolatry is on Sunday mornings. When you have lots and lots of preachers who will espouse God as only a God of love and grace. Why? Because, man, that tickles my ears, and that's what I want to hear. That, that's the kind of God I want right there. You know, that, that love and only kind of God? And yet, the reality? The Bible uses a lot more descriptions, doesn't it? In talking about God, it talks about the jealousy of God, the wrath of God, the holiness of God. And so we don't realize sin is the great separator. Because I think if we did, if we got that more clearly, then we would really truly comprehend what the good news is and we'd want to share it more often. As it is right now, when you think about it, the gospel, we don't appreciate it all that much because deep down we don't think we're all that bad. We've kind of convinced ourselves, yeah, you know, we're, we're pretty good. Well, here's a question for you. If you're so good, why wasn't it you on the cross? Because folks, listen to me. There's only been one spotless lamb. When I read some of the modern day writings from quote unquote theologians, I just, it tears my heart out because what they're trying to do is basically say, you know what, deep down we're pretty good people. God is a loving God, full of grace and love. And trust me, I understand God loves us. He sent his son to die, right? And I'm counting on his grace. But that doesn't change the fact that He will be our judge and He is holy. And the very best we got to offer Him, basically when you read Isaiah, it's like filthy rags. Let let me paint it for you this way. I, I was doing a youth rally recently and this woke them up and got their attention. Imagine, if you will, a 50 gallon drum full of the nastiest, vilest, just grossest thing that you can think of. Basically, the New York sewer. And you're inside of it. And you're drowning in that. And all of a sudden, you look out over the top of that 50-gallon drum, and you see this figure coming at you who is wearing nothing but pristine white. His name is Jesus. And here's what he did. 
he plunged headlong into that barrel for you and for me. When you get that kind of a a notion in your head, when you realize sin is a big deal, the best we have to offer God is like filthy rag. Then you begin to have a biblical worldview that helps you to understand how we're supposed to live and how everything else plays out. Because when you think about it for just a moment, the entire rest of the Bible, from Genesis 3 all the way through the book of Revelation, is trying to tell you how to get back into that covenant relationship with God. How to get your name in the book of life. Here's my point. If you start with a big bang, you just erased all of that. You don't have a concept of God being the creator. You don't have the concept of of sin separating us from God. And you certainly don't have the concept for the the need of a redeemer, for Jesus. So our worldview matters. If I were to go around Nashville, Tennessee, Winchester, Tullahoma area, and I ask people, are you saved? What do you think the majority of people are going to say? Absolutely. I mean, in Middle Tennessee, pretty much everybody believes that they're saved, right? And yet, let me remind you what I started with. I told you only 4% of the population has a biblical worldview. That means only 4% are looking at things through the lens of God's Word. And oh, by the way, even some in the church that don't have a true biblical worldview. Now, isn't that interesting? we got all these folks that say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And yet, at the end of the day, they're not really interested in serving They're not interested in doing the hard things, so to speak. They're not interested in true doctrine. They're not interested in holiness. They're not interested in getting out of their comfort zones to reach the lost. Basically, what they're interested in is, did I put my hour in this week? Again, is that a biblical worldview? Or is that a secular worldview? works righteousness worldview. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. If you got your Bibles, open them up there. Matthew chapter 7 is the end of one of his more famous sermons. Matthew chapter 5, we've got the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm saying there is a narrow gate. And I suspect everybody in this room, you've heard about this narrow gate. You've heard sermons about it. But notice what else he's saying. He's also saying not everybody's going to heaven. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Look at verse 14. He goes on to say, because narrow is the gate and difficult or narrow is the way, which leads to life, and there are few who find it. What are you saying, Jesus? He's saying in order to get to that narrow gate, you got to be on what? 
narrow path. You'll talk about why having a biblical worldview is important because, folks, when you open up his word and you look at it, you realize, wait a second, in order to get to that narrow gate, i got to be on the narrow path. Be ye holy as I am holy. It doesn't say put in your hour on Sunday because that's good enough for me. No, Jesus is saying, you want, you want through that narrow gate? You got to be on the narrow path. I, I fear sometimes what we do is we, we baptize our young people and they come up out of the water and instead of encouraging them and instead of, of getting them onto that narrow path, they go right back out on the broad way. You say, Brad, why would you say that? I would say that because I got the statistics to back it up. You look at all of the, the different research groups, whether it's Barna, Pew Research, Gallup, all of them are saying the same thing. And that is, there is just as much sin in the church building as there is outside of it. Which is a problem. Because it's telling me, wait a second, maybe we're not putting on the new man. Maybe we're not encouraging our children to count the cost and realize, wait a second, there's something to this whole Christian life thing. And instead, I think what we've done is we've basically sold it like a flu shot. You know, baptism's that, that idea of, I'm good, I'm covered. I got my flu shot. Okay, folks, if that is the case, then why did Jesus Christ himself say, you got to be on the narrow path? Think about it for just a moment. Are we really teaching our children to put on the new man? I think most everybody in this room recognizes the fallacy behind the sinner's prayer. Something you, you don't find in the Bible. If, if you're sitting here tonight say, wait a second, yeah, you do. Please, in all seriousness, find me after this. Let's talk about it. I'd love to study that with you. Because deep down, you're not going to find it in God's Word. My question is, is it possible that we may be guilty of a similar type thing, of teaching our children that they are guaranteed heaven as long as they go into the water? Because again, folks, Paul talks about putting off the old man putting on the new. Look at Colossians 3, 8. But now you yourselves, you're to put off all of these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, Paul is saying, when you come up out of the water, the lens through which you start looking at everything should be the lens of God's Word. That, that should be your standard. And so if you're asking yourself, man, I wonder, I wonder if I should go see that movie. I, I wonder if I should do X. I, I wonder if I should do Y. Your standard, your, your worldview should now be tainted by God's Word. But we, we've all heard the phrase, rose-colored glasses. You know, where you put on the, the glasses that tint everything kind of a, a pinkish hue? Paul here is saying, not rose-colored, but Jesus-colored glasses. That's what we should be looking through. 
And yet, when we look around at congregations all across the United States, we see young people who quite literally are dressing immodestly. They are practicing immorality all the while they're worshiping God. And I'm looking at that realizing that is not a picture of a biblical worldview. You know, our our kids, our young people look around and they see people who basically, you know, they think they're all good because after all, they feel like they've been saved. And yet, these are people who are living very worldly. Well, somebody help me understand, where does it say in the Bible that we can be worldly and pleasing to God? As you think about your worldview and what you're teaching your kids, let me just get right to the point. What's your definition of success? Is your definition of success that you are training your kids have to do with maybe an education or or amount of money or a size of a house or or a certain style automobile? Is that how we're defining success? Because, folks, that is a secular worldview 100%. Listen to what Revelation chapter 21 says, starting in verse 12. I saw the dead and small and great standing before God, and the books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Notice the last sentence. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You'll know what success is. If you've got a a true biblical or a Christian worldview, success is getting your entire family's name in the book of life. That's success. And yet, here's the reality. I know this because every weekend I go out, I travel to, to various things. For instance, I go to a youth rally. And the folks call me, they say, hey, you know, we're having trouble with our youth. They're kind of just, they're just apathetic. They're, they're, they're in the world. We're, we're really wanting them all charged up. So what do they do? They hire somebody to come in and talk to them. And yet, here's the reality. 30 minutes before that youth rally starts, those kids are sitting in front of some ungodly TV show or, or playing some worldly video game. They come and they listen for a few hours And within 30 minutes of leaving, they're right back in front of that screen. And for the life of us, we can't figure out why our children aren't more spiritual. Well, maybe it's because we've allowed them to embrace a secular worldview. Maybe they're looking at things not through the lens of God's Word, but through the lens of the world. And as a result, our kids are looking around at others who profess to be Christians. They they carry Christian worldview. They take comfort because after all, everybody's okay. And so here's what the young people say. They say, yeah, you know, sure, I watch a few things I shouldn't watch. But but really, I'm the same as everybody else in my youth group. 
You know, sure, I may dress sensually or I may may listen to some things that I shouldn't listen to or I may laugh about the very things that God abhors. But so does everybody else. Moms and dads, if you want proof of what I'm talking about, all you got to do is compare the Facebook page of a Christian young person with that of a non-Christian. And you know what you see? You see, for instance, images of immodesty. You see language maybe that should not be used. And oh, by the way, every single one of the images on the screen is coming from the Facebook page of a Christian whose dad is a deacon. Does it matter what our worldview is? You see, folks, Jesus said, if you want to get to the narrow gate, you got to be on the narrow path. I'm here to tell you, there's some, they're not on the narrow path. And the reality is, some people don't want to be. Because instead of viewing it as getting to fix the separation that happened in the garden, they view it as rules. I don't want more rules. I I don't want more commandments. Okay, how would you like to live in a garden with God forever and never worry about dying, never worry about sickness and death? Because that was the original plan. We, (laughs) We live on a fallen world. And so here's the reality. In the church today, we got many, many young people who are comfortable who realistically, they ought to be afraid. I I tell people, let's let's stop being hypocrites. Let's stop hiding it. And and let's admit, in many cases, we're raising young people who would rather be the latest reality star or, or the latest sports star rather than be like Jesus Christ. That's a worldview problem. And it starts in the home. You know, when you hear about a sports star making gazillions of dollars, is that one of those times where you're sending a subtle signal to your children that, man, that guy right there, he's lucky. You ought to, you ought to try that. Then you could buy me a big old house. Is that, is that the signal we're sending them? Or do our kids realize that is basically idolatry? That's idol worship. Like the Greeks and the Romans, and lo and behold, we're paying them a whole lot of money to play a game. I mean, when you think about it for 12 years, here's what we're doing. We're filling their minds with anti-God sentiment. We're filling their minds with not a, a Christian worldview, but rather a secular worldview. Why would I say that? I would say that because unless they're attending this private academy that you guys are working on, Their textbooks, their textbooks are not really giving God credit for creation. They're they're not giving him credit for creating man from the dust of the ground. You say, Brad, why would you say that? Because he's not allowed in the textbooks. I I use this example because to me it's a good example. Some of you grew up in the 70s, 80s, 90s. You can remember studying a guy named George Washington. Remember him? First president, founding father, 
He used to take up an enormous amount of history books. But in the last 10 to 15 years, they've noticed a dramatic decrease to the point where in one history book that I'm familiar with, they now cover George Washington in six lines. Six lines of text. That same history book gives Marilyn Monroe six pages of text. Now, does that bother you? One of the reasons they're doing it is because George Washington actually used a lot of Bible. He talked about God in many of the quotes that we have. And so little by little, here's what they're doing. They are taking George Washington out of history, and they're putting in people like Marilyn Monroe. Now, some of y'all, that bothers you. But do you realize that same history book gives absolutely no credence to the creator of the universe, to the founding father of the universe, Jehovah God? That's a biblical worldview. And that's why it matters. I think in too many cases what we've done is we have built our worldview basically around our godless culture. And so little by little what you see is we're we're raising young people that think they are Christians and that they're saved, but they're looking at everything through the lens of the world. Jesus said one of the signs of being a, a genuine Christian is that we'll walk the narrow way. Let me ask you this evening, what is the sign of being a genuine Christian in this congregation? And please do not tell me it's wearing a Christian t-shirt. I mean, think about it for just a moment. What what is the sign of being a, a Christian? Because if tomorrow evening this particular structure was destroyed by a tornado, the church still exists, amen? Will the church continue to do the jobs of mission, evangelism, benevolence? see, this is just a building. And our kids coming to this building and clocking in for an hour a week, that's not teaching them the precepts of Jesus Christ. So what do we got to do? We got to make sure in your homes and mine that we are firmly establishing that Christian worldview. Takes it all the way back to creation, to God's original plan shows them the damage of sin and why sin is such a big deal. And then it brings in the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he's done for everybody in this room. When they start looking at the world through that lens, that's the right perspective. 